the Triathlon Show 383. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm Rose Michael, and on today's episode, we have two expert interviews related to the usage of carbon fiber plated shoes, or so called super shoes. First, Dr. Dustin Joubert, who has been on the podcast before, discusses new research on the effect that super shoes have at slower speeds that are more relevant for the majority of runners and triathletes, and how these effects and the uh, improvements in running economy differ from the previously observed effects at faster speeds. Then in the second interview, uh, Dr. Amol uh, Saxena shares a case series of how rapidly transitioning to running in super shoes may increase the risk of navicular bone stress injuries. Each of these interviews is about 30 minutes long, but I will uh, come back uh, after the first one and uh, introduce the second one. So there will be a small interlude there. But before we get into listening to these interviews, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration. They help athletes perform at their best with electrolyte and fueling products and with free online tools, education and a patented sweat test. You can use the free fuel and hydration planner on their website to get a personalized plan for carbohydrate, sodium and fluid intake. And you can book a free 20-minute video consultation to chat through your plan with the athlete support team. You can get 15% off your first order by using the code TTS23 on precisionfuelandhydration.com. And thank you to Form. The Form Smart Swim Goggles give you real-time feedback in your swim training through a display on the goggle lens. You can see every split, live stroke rate, and even live heart rate if you use uh, polar heart rate monitors. And all of this will help you execute your swim workouts more optimally with better pacing and better control of your intensity. You can also get access to in-depth post-swim analysis with additional metrics in the Form app. And uh, the app syncs your workouts seamlessly to Training Peak, Strava, Today's Plan, and Final Surge. They also have a vast library of workouts and training plans that you can use or you can build your own guided workouts get 15 percent off the goggles with the code tts15 on formswim.com for slash tts now let's get into the first interview with dr dustin joubert about whether super shoes are still effective uh, even at slower running speeds than those previously studied welcome back to that triathlon show dustin how are you doing hey i'm good michael good to be here again yeah, it's, it's very nice to have you back. Uh, for the listeners that may not have heard your previous appearance on the podcast, can you uh, give us a brief introduction to yourself? Sure, yeah. So I'm an exercise physiologist, uh, university faculty, uh, currently at St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas. Um, been here just for about a year now, um, previously over at Stephen F. Austin State University, where I've done some of my previous work. And, you know, I'm a long-term, long-time runner, always had an interest in endurance exercise performance and um, with you know the new shoes that are out now that's been a, a fun line of research for me for the last couple of years so I, I have to ask what's your next big running goal then uh, since you're a runner <laughs> uh, i've got boston next month yeah all right yeah so some, some putting in some good long runs now and, and what will be your racing shoe for boston uh, we're going alpha fly original alpha fly yeah 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 i thought so um well, in that ori- original interview, we discussed your your first study comparing a number of the different carbon plated fiber sh- footwear that was out there, including the original Alpha Fly. Um, and I think then already you mentioned that you had something in the works to uh, to investigate whether the running economy benefits that you have seen and, and others have seen as well in the super shoes translate to slower speeds where most runners uh, perform, especially if we're talking something long like the marathon. And that's something that has now been published. So can you talk a bit more about this recent, more recently published study that you did? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, after we did that first study, we had tested at 16 kilometers per hour in that study, which is pretty common from some of the other research that was in the lit prior to on the new shoes. And I think a lot of the questions that people had, you know, people, that's a, that's a, what, uh, 16 kilometers per hour is like in the two, two thirty eight ish marathon range, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, It it should be. Yeah, right around there, right around there. Yeah, too. and even even the the slower speeds at the time that had been tested in the lit was 14 kilometers per hour, which is a three hour marathon. And you know you've got a lot of people running marathons at slower paces than that, even at big 
you know, races where you need a qualifying time for majority of people at a, a Boston race or something like that are running slower. Um, and then, you know, in the triathlon world, running slower paces off the bike, um, we started to ask the question of like, you know, are the benefits still this like three ish, four ish percent that we had seen in the faster speeds. And so we got, um, 16 subjects for this, this most recent study to test at both 10 and 12 kilometers per hour, which that's looking for the marathon. That's more like three thirty to four fifteen marathoners. Um, it'd be relevant to. Yeah. And, uh, and this was some, a pace that for these runners were basically a pretty su- sustainable pace, right. That would have been around their marathon pace or so. Yeah. So with like all the running economy research, you have to test at um, like slower than their lactate threshold um, because when you get more in that like heavy intensity exercise domain, you might not reach steady state oxygen consumption within like the five minute window or so that we're measuring um, respiratory gas exchange. And so, you know, I think our inclusion criteria in order to test people at 12 kilometers per hour, which is basically eight minute mile pace or uh, is that five, five minute per kilometer pace. Um, we needed people who were like, probably capable of running like 2330 for 5k um so that was that was like the initial inclusion criteria um i think we've recruited probably people that were a little bit faster than that like on the men's side they're probably more uh, well we, we have lifetime best that we listed in the paper so more like 19 minutes to 21 ish minutes probably between the men and the women um but but it was definitely a, a slower group than like we didn't take all the people who were you know 235 marathoners from the previous study and bring them into this study there were people who are those paces were relevant too, but but they have yeah. to be fast enough to run at those paces um, at a steady state aerobic intensity. Yeah, yeah. And when you say lactate threshold, there to be below lactate threshold, we're talking about the the first lactate threshold, right? So so they would be in the moderate intensity domain, or yeah. Well, we so kind of two things we look at um, as a as a check at the end of the test to make sure they're below four millimoles is like one of our safeguards, and then. So we're not actually bringing them in for like threshold testing prior, but um, based on their performance times being below, you know, 2330, we'd estimate at this pace, it'd be fine. So we, we like double check that and make sure they're below four millimoles lactate, but probably more importantly, you can see that they're, um, this is kind of getting into the physiology details more, but you can see their respiratory exchange ratios are below one. If you're going to try to use that for a caloric expenditure estimation, and then you can just visualize oxygen consumption to see that they're reaching a steady state um in that five minute like window that we're measuring oxygen consumption so so there's a number of ways to, to ensure yeah, that yeah. but got it and uh and then yeah in terms of the testing protocol that you used and importantly were the shoes what what shoes did you test here and or shoe and and what was the specific protocol used yeah so kind of as a starting point on assessing the shoes at slower speeds we just went with the most tested shoe out there which has been the nike vaporfly line so this, the shoe we've got is the Vaporfly Next Percent 2. Um, but that's the, that's the most studied shoe in the, the super shoe lit. So it made sense to go with one that we knew worked well at faster speeds um, to investigate at slower speeds. So that was our, our experimental shoe and then our control shoe that we've been using. Um, that's just like standard EVA foam, no plate. Um, similar mass was the um, Asics Hyperspeed. That's what we've been using. And then the the protocol was also similar to what you have been using in previous studies. Can you describe that? Yeah, so standard standard running economy protocol um, is five minute stages or five minute trials, um, and you ideally want to test each shoe in duplicate all within the same day to limit the variability of like your equipment and your person. So to test the shoe at ten kilometers per hour, those two shoes we would do four by five minute reps at 10 kilometers per hour, um, with five minute breaks between each rep. And we would test the shoes in like a, a BBA sequence or a BAA sequence. So you would do the control shoe, experimental shoe, experimental shoe, control shoe. Um, so you kind of eliminate any sequence effect and you test each shoe in duplicate. Um, so given that we were only testing two shoes and two speeds, um, we were able to do like all eight trials. Um, so the four, four trials per speed, all eight trials in the same day, which is nice from a <laughs> getting the study done perspective and getting people in and out, um, but also limiting the the variability that you would see otherwise between days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just to make sure that the listeners are uh, we're fo- following along there. So it's eight trials total because you have two shoes to control and the um, and the Vaporfly shoe and and you have 
two tests with each shoe at each speed so 10 kilometers an hour and 12 kilometers an hour or that is five and six minutes per kilometer pace or eight and um what is 10 kilometer or 10 kilometers per hour uh, or 940 940 yeah. yeah 940 mile pace um all right so what were the results then yeah so you know in the previous study we had done we had seen the vaporfly compared to that same control shoe at 16 kilometers per hour and those faster runners at about 2.7 percent economy benefit which is consistent with what you see in the rest of the lit kind of ranging from 2.7 to 4 percent and the other studies that have been done on that shoe in this study um, using that same shoe and control shoe at the 12 kilometers per hour speed we only saw a benefit of around like one and a half percent um, so slightly reduced compared to the faster speeds and then even more so at the 10 kilometers per hour um, a little less than 1% benefit. So the benefits in terms of economy were reduced at these slower speeds. Yeah, and uh, why do you think that that is? Do you have any hypothesis for for that? I mean, the slower speed for something that was already, but what 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 is the reason for that at slower speeds you might have uh, reduced benefits? Yeah, so in the paper, we kind of hypothesized two mechanisms. Um, my main thought going in was sort of like how much you're compressing the foam um, is probably relevant. So there's new, like highly compliant and resilient foams, um, made of PIBA and this like Zumex foam in these shoes. Um, we know those the material properties are a big advancement, but you know, the foam is only returning energy that you put into it. And so running at slower speeds, lower ground reaction forces, you're putting less energy into the shoe with each step. And so you only get, can get back what you put in. Um, so so what's, that's one of our hypotheses is that maybe that you're just compressing the foam less at these lower speeds and, and capitalizing less on the benefits of it. It's also possible that like the, the control shoe that's using that standard EVA foam maybe is like not as much of a detriment at slower speeds because like that foam is good enough at the, the lower forces that are being put into it. So it's maybe it's a combination of those things. And then, and you know, there's, there's some other research with the, these stiff carbon plates that are embedded into the, the shoes that increased longitudinal longitudinal bending stiffness um, may be more beneficial at faster speeds. Um, some of the research on the just carbon plates alone, regardless of the the new foams, is a little more equivocal. But um, maybe some suggestions that that that, like, that plate that stiffness um, you need to be running at faster speeds for to sort of flex that plate. Yeah, um, in the paper you have. Uh a graph with all the individual responses and, and you've looked at that as well and commented on it. So there were actually a few subjects that had lower running economy with the vapor flies compared with the control shoe. Uh, more so, I think five subjects at 10 kilometers an hour had had actually a lower running economy and, and only two of them at 12 kilometers an hour. Now, I can't remember off the top of my head, but is this something that you have seen at the 16 kilometer per hour speeds at all with some individuals having reduced running economy in the vapor flies compared to the control shoe? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a, a point that people are starting to pay more attention to is in the previous lit. So in our study where we tested at 16 kilometers per hour, um, if you look at the Barnes paper and the Hellcomer paper where they tested at faster speeds, every single part, there's, there's a range in like responses in terms of the magnitude of the benefits people get in this shoe, but everyone had a beneficial response. Um, and so that's across, you know, three studies, uh, probably three dozen subjects there. And, and if you look in our study, as you mentioned at the slowest speed at that 10 kilometers per hour, five of our 16 subjects actually had a, a decrement in economy in this, this vapor fly shoe. Um, and so, um, so that is novel. That is different than what we've seen um, previously. And then, I, as you said, a couple, two of the subjects um, at the 12 kilometer per hour speed. But so, yeah, I think that's that's definitely a, a point for people running at slower paces who are like, oh, I need to go put on one of these super shoes. Um, you know, our group average data shows that there's still a benefit probably um, across across this like whole group. Um, with this this shoe at slower speeds, but there's a chance that you, you're one of these people who actually has a negative response, um, and your economy gets worse, um, and so that that'd be certainly a concern. Yeah, um, and 
you did weight match the shoes so you added some weights i think uh to one of the shoes but i can't remember was it the control shoe you added weights to or the uh the vaporfly shoe which one was lighter from, to start with uh the control shoe is like uh we we added weight the vaporfly is a little lighter so we added like it's like 13 grams it's <laughs> it's like a few wing nuts that you put on the laces yeah um, okay so so, so yeah, the the vapor flies lighter. You said, and so that's right, right. okay, yeah. Um, so, so maybe there, maybe one of those subjects ends up having a neutral, uh, neutral response. Let's say if it's actually at its, but then you could find a, another control shoe that is maybe lighter than the vapor flies. Yeah, it depends on what the person's like. You know, the vapor flies, the vapor fly, but people have a bunch of other options. If they were saying like, I'm going to run in some standard shoe that I just like, it might be it might be more heavy than that, and yeah. Yeah. On race day, you don't mass match things, but in certain laboratory experiments, it makes sense to mass match things. Uh, in this yeah. study, I thought in this study, I thought it did. In our previous study, where we were just comparing all the different super shoes on the market to one another, it didn't make sense to mass match things there because it's you're going to compete in that shoe as is. So, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, yeah, and one thing that uh, we talked about in our last interview about maybe there there is a reason for individuals at least if if you are looking to gain um a minute or a few minutes in your marathon to then we talked about comparing some of the best super shoes for the individual response are, are you running faster in the vapor flies or the alpha flies or the asics or adidas or whichever shoes you might prefer but here you could even say that well maybe if somebody's looking to break four hours for the marathon maybe maybe it is benef- and they are just on the cusp of doing it maybe it is beneficial to test um just your regular favorite shoe with a super shoe just to make sure that you're not just choose- choosing the shoe because it has a heavier price tag and heavier marketing behind it yeah yeah i think that that makes sense and it just like the blanket assumption that that shoe is going to help you, you know, I think what's the practical advice to people is like, you know, if you run in the, the vapor fly, even at these slower speeds and you feel like it's like decreasing your effort, um, and it doesn't feel clumsy and uncomfortable and you can, you know, wear it for the distance that you need to wear it for, then, then maybe you're not one of those non-responders. Maybe you're not one of those negative responders and you can be more confident that you're probably getting a benefit out of it. Right. But if you put it on and are like, I don't know, this thing kind of feels wonky, I feel a lot more comfortable in my other shoe for long durations. Um, then, then I think those are the people that you probably shouldn't just assume that, that, that new, new super shoe is helping you. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to run something by you here because I, I actually, a few months ago, I went into the lab to test a few different super shoes and the control shoe myself. And I kind of followed your protocol with, uh, five minute stages and then looking at the, uh, the economy, uh, for, at the end of each stage with five minute rest in between the stages uh, as well so but then what i what i saw there was that the the running economy correlated very well with my heart rate as well so the heart rate differences were not big but you know i could see a one to two beat per minute very clear and stable difference between the shoe that also had where i had lower oxygen consumption or higher oxygen consumption so in so so my theory then was that well if i don't want to go into the lab next time i'm doing something like this or if i don't have access to a lab i could just do a controlled experiment like that uh, on the treadmill and just look at heart rate as a proxy for oxygen consumption What, what are your thoughts on that yeah. And so that's a, that's a common question is like, how do I do this testing if I don't have a metabolic heart or a lab with one? Right. Um, and I don't, heart rate is not, is not a terrible like physiological marker as an indice of like, you know, the, the effort that's required in these different shoes. It's the one thing with heart rate is it's a, it's a little noisier of a signal than like a VO2 on a good metabolic heart. VO2 on a good metabolic heart's like a, a lot tighter, a lot less, um, variation and then heart rate in my experience like even in a, a temperature controlled room heart rate still tends to drift up a little bit more across the sequence so it's probably it you know the, the way that we test like in a random order and then a mirrored sequence do, doing that mirrored sequence so that you're testing the shoes in duplicate and it's not just like your later reps that maybe if heart rate starts to drift more that you're picking that up so i think that that probably becomes even more important with heart rate um and then and then if you look at our data you know, the conclusions we made in like the super shoe study where we're comparing, you know, eight different shoes, um, 
because the the variability in the metabolic card is like so low, you're able to make like conclusive um, statements or statistical conclusions easier there. Um, the heart rate differences do exist like across the broad range of shoes, but it's harder to be like, okay, this mid tier shoe compared to this top tier shoe, like on heart rate alone. Um, so it's, it's when you have like closer, closer, more subtle differences between the shoes that, that heart rate's a little bit harder to make conclusions on than VO2. But if you've, you know, if you're looking at like a, a control shoe versus a shoe that's giving you 4% economy benefit, I would, I would bet heart rate's going to be fine and, and showing you that too. But yeah. Um, it's one of, where there's more of the smaller differences where I've seen in our data that um, it'd be harder to make those conclusions. Mm, yeah. Okay. Well, that, those are great, great points. Um, one thing that you mentioned in the discussion part of the paper is um, about a study about markers of muscle, muscle damage when using uh, these carbon-plated shoes. And uh, so that's not a study that you did uh, or your colleagues, I think, but an- another group. But what you mentioned there, I think I found, found interesting that theoretically, uh, even if running economy might not be, you might get, not get as big benefits when you're running at slower speeds. If you're out there for a long time and based on this other study that showed some decreased markers of muscle damage when using using these super shoes then that could also be a potential mechanism for helping performance in long events like the marathon yeah definitely i think that's one of the like areas of future research that needs to be expanded is the you know the anecdotal evidence of these shoes what people will say save your legs or like you know cause less muscle damage um that anecdotal evidence is really strong right and like probably in our both of our own personal experiences that the end of long runs are like so fresher or we're not as sore the next day or my calves aren't as sore as a, after a hard session or something. So like, I definitely think there's something there. Um, if you look at the limited amount of research that's out there, there was one like conference symposium proceeding abstract from the Nike research group. And it's really, you know, small sample of like, um, between subject comparisons of people who had run in the Nike Pegasus, like standard trainer versus the, uh, I think the Vaporfly, whatever iteration it was at the time in the Portland Marathon and that the group who had worn the Vaporfly had less like blood markers and muscle damage. So it, you know, scarce evidence, but um, would probably match with what a lot of people's like personal experiences are. And then, you know, the other study that's out more recently, that's a, a full-blown publication in M- MSSE was um, from Matthew Black um, in Andy Jones's lab at Exeter. And they showed, they actually did biopsy work and all like the blood markers um, in the, I think the shoe was the Alphafly Next% percent two. They didn't name it. Um, They say unnamed prototype, but they compared that to a control shoe and they did damaging exercise. It's a little unconventional. They did laboratory damaging running exercise. They did this downhill running protocol. And then they looked like 48 hours post at markers of muscle damage. They didn't see any differences, but I think, maybe it was the design they used. So, so I think more needs to be like parsed out there on like making a conclusive statement on, you know, the extent of muscle damage in these new shoes versus a standard shoe. But, but yeah, to all that, to go back to your original idea of like, even if the economy benefit is small, if, if um, you have less muscle damage late in the race and so you're not cramping, well, certainly you're going to maintain pace better. Right. And then the other thing that interests me, even on the economy front is if we could measure economy late after like a, a long duration session or a long bout of damaging exercise, measure economy, not when your legs are fresh, like our typical protocols do, but do it at the end of like an hour two hour run. Um, maybe those differences become like more disparate or wide, but in that black study, they attempted to do that, but they caused basically the same amount of muscle damage. And then when they did the the economy, like follow-up testing on damaged muscle, it was, it was 48 hours later, like during that DOMS period, it wasn't like at the end of the two hour session kind of thing. So, hmm. um, so yeah, I think there's more to be seen there, but, um, but yeah, I, I think if you're, if you're still comfortable in the shoe two hours in and it caused less muscle damage, then I bet, I bet there's going to be benefits beyond just the, the acute fresh leg economy data. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point about measuring economy late in a in a long run. That's something that is done a lot now in in cycling research, but arguably uh, it, the the changes are probably going to be more significant in running because there's a larger variability between runners in in running economy compared to in in gross efficiency in cycling. So um, 
so yeah, that, that would be really interesting, and hopefully we can see something like that in the in the future. Um, so, so if you summarize, or if you, uh, what, what would you say is the summary or the take home message from this recent work uh, to uh, yeah to to just leave it at with the listeners? Yeah, I think you know if you're running at slower speeds, um, like the speeds we tested at, um, probably on average you're still going to get a benefit from these this well from this super shoe that we tested the vaporfly um but blanket assumption shouldn't be that everyone is going to get a positive benefit so you probably need to take into account like how the shoe feels how it feels over longer durations um to really to really know that yeah one one thing we didn't talk about yet but we talked about that in the previous episode is that uh depending on your speed running economy is going to translate to performance improvement differently right so so if you're running a very at very high speeds a four percent economy improvement is different than at slower speeds and the relationship there is going to be closer to a one-to-one ratio uh if you're running at slow speeds so so the one one point five percent that you might get at twelve kilometers an hour might actually mean mean the same as i don't know to two point five percent at at sixteen kilometers an hour yeah yeah that's i think that's fair is the translating the economy benefit to a velocity improvement is more of a one to one like percentage comparison at slower speeds so you know but but still the the reduction in economy benefit that we saw here was like market enough to where the the overall time benefits are going to be reduced too so i think you know if you're looking at the one and a half percent economy benefit that's going to be uh for the for the 12 kilometer per hour we tested at so for like your 330 marathoner um that one and a half percent economy benefit maybe translates to like three minutes marathon time improvement which is Hmm. certainly substantial still um Yep. Um, and then just finally, so another thing that many listeners will be aware of is your uh, your work with LabRat Rundown. When last we spoke, you only had the Instagram account. Now you have a, a nice website as well, uh, where you do a lot of, well, you summarize the research, but you also do uh, a bunch of N equals one case studies and uh, and different interesting work related to shoes. So is there anything uh, that anything really cool that you got going on there or have done in the in the last few months that you would like to highlight so that listeners can go and and have a look in more detail yeah definitely so well so i can i can share some stuff on some some recent university research as well as like the kind of lab rat stuff that spin-off stuff i've shared but one one other thought kind of in closing in the the study we've been talking about um you know we, if, if there was one other sort of caveat in the individual responsiveness, we tested, um, or like average weight or mass of our subjects was, uh, there was only like two people over 70 kilograms in our, our cohort of the eight men and eight women that we tested. And so if we if we go back to like this theory of maybe like, you're not compressing the foam as much, um, or not flexing the plate as much, um, that's dependent on ground reaction forces, which speed is a big component of that, but body mass would be a component of that too. So you definitely have people who are, you know, running their 34 hour marathons that weigh a lot more than 70 kilograms. And so it would be interesting to see if we looked in like a a heavier population running at those same speeds, if, um, if, you know, if that hypothesis on the phone being, being relevant and ground reaction force being relevant, if they potentially got more benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I think that would be a one caveat I'd give for more study results, but yeah but yeah so on the on the lab rat stuff um we've we just wrapped up uh, another university project we just wrapped up looking at um the benefits of super spikes um so we have the dragonfly the avanti from adidas um and a control spike compared um looking at like quantifying the benefits of the spikes but also compared to shoes to see like are people's economies better in the spikes versus the shoes which is not relevant necessarily internationally, but in the, in the U S where you can wear whatever you want on a track at like NCA and high school level, um, shoes versus spikes is a relevant comparison. So we've got some, some results on that, um, coming out. Um, since we talked last, I mean, there's a bunch of case study stuff that's up on that Instagram page, the website, the website kind of mirrors the Instagram page, but not everyone, not everyone uses Instagram. Um, 
and uh instagram like once you have a bunch of posts on there kind of like it's hard to catalog things or you know find things so that was the the goal with the website was kind of just to have everything in a more searchable space so yeah it's labratrundown.com um i've got some other university projects coming up we're doing a um you know, most of the research on these shoes has been in on a treadmill in a laboratory setting. We're going to do some road testing, um, actually on like concrete oh, road surfaces with a with a portable metabolic cart. Um, so that's we'll hopefully be starting that here and within the next month or so. Um, and then down the line, I uh, I don't know. I see, see our original like super shoe study just to kind of like assess the state of the market, like were there differences across brands and models? And there certainly were in that first study. But I think as companies come out with new iterations of shoes and are improving the foams in their shoes, I think that was probably one of the big differences initially. Um, hopefully within the next year or so, we'll like kind of do another assessment of the market. Yep. Um, Super Shoe Study 2.0, which, you know, ideally you see things about the playing field get leveled. That would be like probably good for all stakeholders. Well, maybe not. Yeah individual shoe companies, but the rest of the stakeholders, that would be a good thing. Um, so yeah. Uh, I don't know. I could talk more specifics but, if you had anything in, if you wanted no, more I think, specifics I think, on I think, I think, I think that's a cool, that's a good summary. And, and yeah, I would just encourage listeners to go and have a look at the website or the Instagram account. There's, there's a lot of interesting things there. I, I think, uh, one of the interesting posts that I remember was when you summarized the, uh, one research article on uh, how running uphill and running downhill, uh, how the running economy benefits are different compared to flat ground running, and and then of course you have all of your your just individual case studies where you compare different shoes that haven't been tested in the literature. So so there's there's lots of things to uh, to uh, to go and dig into if you're interested in in shoes. <laughs> Which, yeah, yeah. If there's any new shoe publication that comes out, I try to summarize it to yeah. kind of like. Whether it's my research or others, just to translate it to the general population has been one of the goals with that. So, yeah, All right. So let's do some rapid fire questions. So this is rapid fire questions uh, v two because you already answered the previous ones. Uh, and the first one is, what's your favorite place to train? Oh, my favorite place to train. Uh, man, so I moved to Austin, Texas, a year ago, and Austin, Texas is a great place to train. It's got a great running community. Um, shout out to the purple dragons, long run crew down here. They've been getting me through my Boston build up miles. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, probably not the most scenic place in the world, but, um, it's been a great running community for me for, for long run work, especially. That's good. And what's a bucket list race or event that you would want to do? Uh, I, you know, I, I left my, my triathlon, uh, racing, I don't know, probably seven, eight years ago. Kona would always be kind of a bucket list thing. Maybe when I'm in my forties here soon and the kid's older and I can, you know, give up weekends to training like that again. But, uh, world marathon majors is appealing right now. Um, I wonder, I I really want to run New York. New York looks fun every time I watch it on TV. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the only thing with New York is that at the, the time that you have to wait there in the starting corral seems horrible <laughs> from Probably. what I've heard. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. It just yeah. uh and it can be quite cold there from from what I've heard. So um and uh finally, if you could acquire expert level in any skill in the world for yourself in an instant, what would it be? <laughs> uh, I mean practical answer for my current job would be to be an expert biomechanist, because I'm a physiologist, not a biomechanist. So that would be nice. <laughs> some of the research that i'm doing but that's not very fun that's kind of boring so uh i don't know i feel like the lifestyle of like a, a professional football player or something would be much better than being like an elite runner but <laughs> yeah <laughs> that would be interesting very different from a, from a normal person's life for sure um well thank you so much uh, dustin for for your time and for sharing your uh your research it's been great i'll link to your website and instagram in the show notes so people can go and have a have a look at that and uh, yeah uh, i've enjoyed it uh, as always and uh, hope to talk to you again another time all right thanks michael 
I hope that you found that interesting. Uh, I think that it's super relevant research for the vast majority of runners and triathletes who will be running at slower speeds than those 14 to 16 kilometers an hour that uh, have been tested before. Now, it's possible for runners in these uh, new ranges of speed studied, so 10 to 12 kilometers an hour, to make informed decisions on whether the running economy gains and uh, the theoretical performance gains based on that, uh, whether that warrants investing in these types of shoes. It's still important to point out that not all super shoes are created equal, and uh, that's what we talked about in the original interview with Dr. Schubert, uh, where we discussed his study comparing seven different super shoes. And while some of these shoes, like the Nike Vaporflies of that generation, performed great, others were no better than a non-carbon control shoe. So uh, again, in this particular study, the Nike Vaporflies was the the model tested. So we don't know what this means for how another brand or another model of super shoes will perform. Uh, it is specific to the Nike Vaporflies, of course. If you're interested in hearing more about the differences between various super shoes, then definitely go and listen to uh, episode 322 with Dustin Schubert, and I'll link to that in the show notes. Right, so let's move on to the interview with Dr. Amol Saxena. Before the interview, I do want to point out that this is a case series, so it does not imply a causal relationship between using super shoes and getting injured. Uh, but a case series is a good and tool to raise early awareness of something. Uh, so in this case, the potential risk of injury when transitioning to running in super shoes. Uh, but the point here is simply uh, this is not raising the alarm or anything like that. It's simply um, flagging an area, I guess, where some people might need to have some awareness and caution about how they transition into running with super shoes. I hope that all makes sense, uh, but uh, I'm sure Dr. Amol Saxena uh, explained that much more uh, eloquently than I did. So let's just jump into the interview. Welcome to the Triathlon Show, Amol. How are you doing? Good, how are you? Good, good, thanks. Uh, before we get into the main topic, can you just give us an introduction? Tell us a bit more about yourself. Yeah, I'm a podiatrist in Palo Alto, California, specializing in sports medicine. I've <clears throat> been in practice uh, about a third of a century. I've treated about 100 Olympians, operated on three Olympic gold medalists, and I've published about 150 articles on foot and ankle related issues. And I'm keenly uh, interested in helping athletes, particularly endurance athletes, track and field athletes, get back to the sports they like doing. Yeah, that's quite quite the resume. Uh, the The reason that we're uh, talking today is uh, a recent article that you that you wrote on the potential risk of navicular bone stress injuries in relation to using uh, carbon fiber plated uh, shoes. So can you uh, explain how that came about, first of all, finding or uh, having the hypothesis for that relation and, and then writing the article itself? Yeah, so the, the world is small and, um, I, you know, I've been lucky to meet a lot of interesting people. I've traveled around and I, I uh, have had an interest in navicular stress fractures. I published an article in 2000 about a, a navicular stress fracture pattern and came up with a classification that seems correlated with outcome. And that, by that I mean is uh, how bad your navicular stress fracture will predict how long it'll take you to get back to sport or whether you need surgery. And uh, so I'm, I'm fairly well known. Uh, the classification is actually called the Saxena classification. And um, we uh, share info with other doctors and uh, sometimes doctors contact me for advice about treating these injuries. And um, we had uh, some similar findings. I, I explained that I had a couple more than a couple uh, navicular injuries and uh, it was in the carbon fiber shoes and they were, they're fairly uh, dramatic or acute and uh, navicular injuries are, are slow to get diagnosed. I had a paper in 2017 on the biggest series of uh, surgery on athletes and they often take about eight plus months, almost nine months to diagnose. So they're difficult to pick up. So, Doctors are, 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 
are interested in, in trying to figure out why people have vague ankle or midfoot pain. And so I shared my conversations with Dr. Ten Forty, who then in turn shared his conversations with um, Dr. Hollander, and the um, and he's in, in, co- in contact with Tim Honig, and so we found some similarities of midfoot injuries. Well, this paper we decided just to concentrate just for more scientific value on navicular uh, injuries itself. Uh, I've seen mi- other midfoot injuries with these shoes. That seemed atypical, I'd say. Uh, some other stress fractures in the metatarsals that are slow to heal and in the other midfoot bones that are not so slow to heal, as well as plantar fascia ruptures and posterior tibial tendon ruptures have been noticed in the, uh, in the carbon fiber shoes. And this, is so let's, part, this has been let's maybe start with the first athletes, actually. So Yeah. Let's maybe start with defining uh, the navicular injuries. Um, so what, what is that? Is that particular bone or several bones in the midfoot for the listeners that are not familiar? Can I explain? Yeah, that? yeah. So the navicular bone is the arch bone. Uh, so on the high point of your foot uh, uh, is your arch. And the high, highest point is usually the navicular, which is just beyond your ankle bone or your talus. And it gets a lot of undue stress. And um, sometimes undue stress ends up uh, in a bone stress injury. And a stress fracture is kind of a little bit difficult term to uh, really relate because if you jump off a bench 10 times and then get an MRI, you'll show stress to your knee and to your midfoot. And so that's why we try to call these bone stress injuries because they're actual injury, not just stress. (laughs) And... Then uh, with my classification system, we try to classify them to show how bad they are, which in turn determines the treatment and how long it'll take to get better. What would the symptoms be like? You mentioned that they're often quite acute, these injuries. So how would one know or suspect that one has a navicular bone stress injury? Well, they, they're often acute, but not often, not as often as you think. Um, okay. I had I had one back when I was in podiatry school uh, almost 40 years ago. It came on very acutely. It felt like someone took a, a chisel and just into the top of my foot. Uh, and the two cases I uh, provided in the series were fairly were very acute. The issue is that some people have a quick, rapid, acute pain, and then it become and then they just it just kind of calms down because the navicular bone. The reason why these are such important injuries and and potentially career-ending injuries, is that the bone does not have good blood supply. That that one bone is one of the three or four bones in the foot that have high risk and, and slow healing. So this is why it takes often long time to heal because it doesn't have good blood supply. And because it doesn't have good blood supply, this is why the bruising and swelling that you see with other fractures in the foot doesn't occur. And so many people might just brush it off and just say, oh, your arch hurts. You're, you might have arch pain or ankle sprain pain. And this is why it often takes eight or nine months to diagnose. So it's important to know about this because the sports medicine docs need to have a high index of suspicion. So if it hurts on top of your foot, we call it the N spot, N for navicular. And if it throbs and aches, hurts to uh jump up and down on your toes, particularly barefoot. Patients often say I can run 70 miles a week, but when I do speed work, it really hurts after I'm limping. Those are people that are, are giving symptoms potentially of a navicular stress fracture. And I think you had a stat in uh, in the article saying that navicular stress fractures or stress injuries might be Correct me if I'm wrong. I think you said 35, 37% of all stress fractures, so a fairly high number. In uh, in athletes in the foot, correct, yeah. In, in, okay, so it's only in the foot. Okay, got, gotcha. Not of all. Um, They're still relatively rare. I mean, I my series in uh, 2017 was 60 to 3, I believe, and that was the biggest series, particularly the biggest series of people who've had surgery for the navicular, so. Right, yeah. If if you have a navicular stress injury, what is the treatment and, and rehabilitation process like? 
Yeah. So that's a very good question. Um, so first you got to understand you've got a serious injury and it can take minimum three months to get better based on the classifications that uh, the original ones, which are type one, which is a crack in the top of the navicular bone. Type two is a crack from the top extending into the bone can be like halfway through. And then type three is a complete fracture through the bone. And in, uh, I believe in 2006, we came up with a type 0.5, which is not quite broken, but it's a bone stress injury. So it doesn't show up as broken on a CT scan, which by the way, is the best treatment or best uh, diagnostic uh, test is a a CT scan with small cuts uh, because the MRI misses stress fractures oftentimes. It doesn't show fracture detail. So if you have a navicular injury, you really should get a CT scan. And then the treatment is for the type 0.5, which does not show any fracture at all based on a CT scan. And type 1 is generally non-surgical, non-weight-bearing for three to six weeks, boot, keeping their foot at 90 degrees. That's the problem. People just use crutches and their foot hangs down. If their foot hangs down, they have tension on top of their foot. Bones do not heal with tension on top of their foot. So uh, they need to be in a boot at 90 degrees and and non-weight-bearing minimum. Uh, Usually for type 1s, it's going to be six weeks. And then you walk in a boot for another four weeks and get uh, back to activity. Um, For type two, which is the partial fracture and type three, complete fracture. Keep in mind, a lot of doctors think, oh, this is a non-displaced fracture. It doesn't need surgery. This is wrong in this injury. If you have a type two or type three fracture in my study in 2017, your bone will either not heal, re-break, or go on to having arthritis in the joint. And that was the situation. It's, it's public knowledge with Paula Ratcliffe. There's an article uh, that she's quoted about. And so these are three bad things that can happen to an athlete that wants to run. And so the treatment uh, for those would be surgery and sometimes some bone graft if it's uh, an older injury and you just use bone graft from the heel. And uh, so with surgery, you have a screw to compress the fracture, usually one screw. Sometimes we have two and bigger athletes like basketball players. And uh, can't really say the prevalence uh, uh, because we don't have a registry or a data bank for navicular injuries. I sort of become the data bank for a lot of colleagues um, who send me their cases, but um, we don't have a registry. And um, if you're low in vitamin D, you're more likely not to heal. The other treatment that's exciting for us is something called shockwave. It's been around for 20 years. There's three different types of shockwaves now. There's focused shockwave, which is better for bone. So we use that for navicular injuries. There's a newer type of shockwave called electromagnetic transduction therapy, which is abbreviated EMTT. And uh, those two shockwaves are game changers. Uh, we use that in um, one of the athletes in the series, and, and he healed very quickly, was able to do his marathon four weeks later because he had a type 0.5. So uh, shockwave is definitely an a excellent treatment and oftentimes an adjunctive or a, a addition to surgery. Yeah, that's a great summary. Just one follow-up on that. If you have a surgery for it with a type 2 or type 3, how long would you normally expect uh, until you can run, start running again after surgery? Yeah, it's usually about four and a half months. <clears throat> and about 10% mm, yeah. of the people have can have a refraction. And about 10% of the people can uh, need the screw removed. Most of the time we leave the screw. And I've, you, know, you can look on my website. I've had several elite athletes... Uh, very uh, well-known triathletes, uh, including Jesse Thomas, that have screws in both his feet. So, hmm. yeah. Um, so, what is the connection between carbon fiber uh, shoes and navicular stress injuries? Yeah, so that's a good question. The carbon fiber plate bends very little, and it's curved. If you look at the picture we have uh, in our um, article. There's an x-ray of a side view of a lead athlete and where the plate lies in relation to his bones. 
your bones are lined up to have hinges or your foot is lined up to have hinges. There's 33 joints. There's actually 28 bones, even though they say 26. There are two bones underneath the big toe called sesamoids, which are also slow healing stress fractures, by the way. So your bones and your feet will bend where where they line up and the carbon f- uh, fiber plate won't bend. So if your carbon fiber shoe doesn't bend, your foot has to bend. And your foot may bend in a place where it doesn't have an axis. And biomechanically, if the axis is different where the fulcrum is on the shoe as to where your foot wants to bend, then things get stressed. And so what the carbon fiber shoes do is they get you up on your toes faster. So the transition time from heel or midfoot to toe is shorter and more rapid. And it may be too rapid for your soft tissue to adjust. And that's why some people tear their plantar fascia or get plantar fasciitis or posterior tibial tendon, which is your arch tendon, or some people's bone gets stressed. And it can be in the midfoot and the back of the metatarsals on the instep to the mid, mid middle bones. And then the navicular is the weak bone. So that's why we were seeing more injuries there. So again, just to summarize, the carbon plate does not bend and your foot has to bend. So the weakest link will break. Mm, yeah, that, that makes sense. And so, so how? So when you have you you did wrote this case series together with with some colleagues, um, can you explain a little bit the the types of injuries and cases that you that you discuss in the in the case series? What type of athletes and uh, and how how did their injuries come about in terms of acute versus stress over time and so on? Yeah, I mean, a couple of the patients had them acutely. They were high-level elite uh, athletes that don't train normally in carbon fiber footwear. And um, one needed surgery, one did not. And then uh, there were three uh, youth uh, uh, athletes in track and field uh, also had the um, uh, commonality, a couple of them in steeplechase. Uh, where you're landing on your on your ball, your foot, and that puts more impact into the navicular. And I, I, one of them ended up having surgery. Uh, surgery, again, for type 2 and 3 is more predictable. And if uh, just statistically in my series in 2017, if you did not have surgery bef- and you had a, a type 3 under age 19, you're statistically more likely to fracture, get arthritis, or give up your sport. So again, it's a, it's a significant injury. And parents sometimes freak out if you tell them, you know, their 16 or 17 year old needs surgery. It, you know, it can it can happen. But uh, again, the arthritis is a tough thing to deal with. Of that foot, there's no joint replacement in that joint. Um, I've done several times uh, an arthrodiastasis. That's what I did on Paula Ratcliffe, the former marathon record holder, where you stretch out the joint to try to let soft tissue fill in. And she's still able to run 40 miles a week, and she likes the carbon fiber shoes. Um, I think that they are comfortable for some people. You just need to make sure that your foot has enough mobility that it bends where the shoe is forcing your foot to bend. Hmm. In in the athletes in the case series, it's is it fair to say that all of them had relatively limited experience with the uh, carbon fiber shoes? So and and that would point towards um, a safe transition into using them would be just gradually build, building volume and you maybe not using them for the first time in a in a race or something or what what would the exactly yes. take take a message be? Definitely don't use them for a first time. <laughs> well, there's. <laughs> You know, there's the rookie mistakes, right? So don't use them for the first time in a race. You shouldn't be doing that anyway. Um, there were some instances of that uh, in our Olympic marathon trials in 2020 in U.S. with injuries. So you want to do some gradual transitioning. The other thing is that there's a helpful device. I don't have any ownership or anything. You can, uh, It's called the Blackboard. And there's a website, blackboardtraining.com. And I believe there's a hyphen between blackboard and training. And I have links on my website. My website, by the way, is just my name and as one word, amalsuccena.com. 
Uh, got a nice picture of Chelsea who won the uh, Ironman this year. It's been a long-term patient. But if you go under links, you can get this blackboard. And again, I don't have any, I don't have any ownership in it. It's just a uh, hinge type of device that you can change and work your foot in multiple planes. So that helps multiple mobilize and work your foot in multiple different axes to get your foot stronger and more mobile. And so I think that's a, that's a helpful thing. And it's, it's a popular device with a lot of physios in Europe. Uh, I've, I've, brought the, uh, the technology, so to speak, and the concepts to the United States. So I have several physical therapists and there's some courses that are being done um, that are often taught uh, by Europeans. And so I would, I would consider getting that type of device or some type of foot mobilization device. You can start out with those ankle balls, which uh, make your foot bend and try to mobilize and strengthen your foot as you start adopting to uh, the carbon fiber shoes. Yeah. And that would probably be helpful anyway, whether you're using carbon fiber shoes or not, because injuries could be prevented by, by better foot mobility and strength. Yeah. It's a game changer for athletes, for athletes and and dancers. It's, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. There's one that I know called the Mobo board by uh, physiotherapist Jay Dishari as well. I think Mm -hmm. it's kind of a similar. Yeah. That's another good thing. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Um, Another point that you, uh, uh, that you raise in the article is just uh, increasing the awareness around uh, this potential danger, I guess, of, um, of uh, navicular stress injuries from using carbon fiber footwear, especially if you um, rush into the, transition so so i guess that's now something that we're trying to do here in this uh, in this podcast as well making sure that athletes are aware that if they have some something that feels the symptoms feel like what you described then that's something that they can consider when they go to their doctor um but is there anything else that you would say on on that point on the raising awareness point about uh navicular injuries well, it's a little bit of a complicated issue with uh, shoe companies obviously needing to and, and selling shoes and the public wanting to run faster. And uh, I think that um, doctors uh, need to know about footwear just like they need to know about medication, particularly podiatrists and other sports medicine doctors. So uh, we try to that's why we try to publish. Uh, we wrote a letter read, uh, to the editor in the British Medical Journal, British Journal of Sports Medicine, actually. Um, it takes a long time to get these things published and co- collected. I mean, we started working on this paper over a year. And, uh, you know, if you go to meetings, you might hear a little bit about this. And uh, and so it, I think I think it takes time and the motivation to for awareness in this aspect maybe a little bit have a conflict so so to, so to say so yeah that, that's that's a very fair point uh in things, things shoe companies have in the past used uh reduced injury risk as a as a marketing tool but they're, yeah, they're probably unlikely to um to mention to have any warnings around potential increased injury risks when you transition to a different type of, of footwear. Uh, is there anything else that uh, we should mention regarding these injuries or this uh, carbon fiber footwear that uh, that we have missed? No, I think we covered, I think, uh, you know, summarize uh, before you start running in carbon fiber footwear, start strengthening and mobilizing your foot, do it gradually. I don't know necessarily if you had to follow the 10% rule. I don't necessarily think you need to. Um, but I do think you need to do shorter runs before longer runs and don't do them first time in a race and top of the foot or instep pain can be a slow healing stress fracture. So if you have throbbing, aching, hurts to go up on your toes, gets worse as you run, then you need to push for a proper examination and, and keep in mind the average navicular stress fracture in the medical community takes nine months to diagnose. So you may need to push a little harder and, and a CT scan is definitely the best test. It's better than an MRI. It does have radiation, but it's very low. And then you, you may need surgery for the navicular injuries. And so you need to realize that I see time and time again, people treated non-surgically for months and uh, it takes away their 
particular high school kid takes away their whole year of school or sports because if it takes four and a half months to get back to sport after surgery, that's a, it's a half a year. Yeah, I know that's, that's a perfect summary. And just one, one point there with the transition into gradually using the carbon fiber shoes, a couple of the case studies included where basically track and field athletes i think doing a an interval workout for the first time in the in the shoes so maybe if we're a bit more specific it might make sense to start with with some shorter easier runs and then maybe when you start doing intensity even not using the shoes for all of your intervals if you have a workout that is um however whatever it is six times 1k then maybe do three of them in the in the carbon fiber shoes rather than all six of them yeah that would be a good way to do it yeah uh all right so let's just finish off with the rapid fire questions that i ask all guests on the podcast and the first one is what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports you know i still go back to jack daniel's distance running formula from 1998 (laughs) Uh, i've been uh, coaching since i was in seventh grade Uh, i coach different uh, levels including helping elite athletes getting them back when they've been injured or have surgery and so I, I look at that. Um, there's a new book by Mark Coogan. I'm looking forward to getting my autograph copy. And Brian Fulham, uh, another sports podiatrist, has a good book on foot and ankle uh, injuries, knowing your foot and ankle. So uh, there's, there's a lot of good resources. Uh, the Joel Free, Friel's um, training, uh, ath- you know, triathletes Bible, that's another one because I, I transitioned from marathon running to duathlon i've competed in several worlds and the duathlon so I, I like there's a lot of good books out there and what's an important habit that you have benefited from athletically professionally or personally uh well it goes with everything i used to say anticipation is the key to relaxation but uh, my wife uh, updated and said uh preparation is the key to relaxation so i think you need to mm-hmm. be prepared anticipate uh, you need to learn how to manage time. And, uh, you know, people are down uh, playing the importance of multitasking. Uh, multitasking is an important skill that every mother probably has who said, I only have two hands. So I think in, in athletics, in your profession, and personally, you need to learn how to to juggle and it's not a bad thing to be a good multitasker and uh, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you well Mahatma Gandhi you know be the change I've, I've tried to be positive about uh, and influence people positively in, in, in my field and research and um, you know Martin Luther King has a lot of great sayings as well I'm, I'm currently doing a master's in public health through uh the dartmouth institute dartmouth college and um i think it's important to keep learning and look at look at uh self-analysis and uh look at your outcomes as if you're a practitioner that's very important that's why adam 1040 and i bond quite well and a lot of my other colleagues i publish with because we like to look at our outcomes and 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 help other people be better practitioners Right. This has been uh, fantastic, Amol. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast and sharing uh, your your knowledge. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I hope that it can be uh, really useful for the listeners to hopefully prevent a lot of injuries and and if they have them, uh, basically treat them the best way that they they can. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, thanks. And uh, my my website has a lot of information that's helpful, uh, exercises and and, uh, things on injuries. It's just amalsuccena.com. So my name is one word. I'm all com. Yeah, I'll put I'll put the link to that and and all the relevant links in the in the show notes. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. I hope that you enjoyed these interviews. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with links to uh, Dustin's and uh, Amol's websites, Dustin's Instagram, the studies that we discussed in these interviews, as well as the previous uh, episode that I did with Dr. Schubert about the original Super Shoe study that he conducted. 
Next Monday, uh, I interview uh, Dajo Sanders, who is a coach at Ineos Grenadiers and a sports scientist who has done a lot of really interesting research in the world of cycling. So that would be an interesting interview with a mix of training and practical application, as well as some science and physiology baked in. Uh, so stay tuned for that. If you want to improve your triathlon performance and want help to achieve your goals, then consider working with a scientific triathlon coach or training plan. We have options for athletes of all different levels and uh, different budgets, and no matter the size of your goal. A few points to highlight that reduce the barrier to get started is that we have no minimum commitment term nor any startup fees for coaching. And for training plans, we have a 100% satisfaction guarantee for plans purchased on our website and an exchange guarantee so you can exchange your plan for another plan if you purchase it through Training Peaks. We also have consultation and customized plan options for something in between. So you can find out more and contact us on scientifictriathlon.com and we can discuss your specific goals and needs and see what's best for you. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free fuel and hydration planner to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs and get a specific and effective race strategy and book a free video consultation with the team if you want to refine it further. Use the code TTS23 at checkout for 15% off your first order. And thank you to Form that you can find on forumswim.com forward slash TTS. Improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace, stroke rate and heart rate and advanced post-swim analysis. And use the code TTS15 to get 15% off the Form Smart Swim goggles. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlons.